Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. I speak with new Ontario Liberal leader Bonnie Crombie. Also on the agenda, dying downtowns, COP28, more defense spending, Brenda Lee, the record breaker, and Christmas missteps. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Thank you for taking a spark and turning it into a big red flame here today. (laughs) There is no question, being an Ontario Liberal is back! Uh, Crombie beat out Nate Erskine-Smith, Yasser Nakvi, and Ted Chu this past weekend, and Ms. Crombie joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Bonnie, good morning, how are you? Good morning. I'm invigorated. That's the word this morning. (laughs) It's a good word to use. Congratulations. Your reaction to needing not one, not two, but three ballots over the weekend. You know, it just shows how engaged our party is and how competitive our race really was. And of course, you know that Nate and and, uh, Yasser had a little alliance, and I think that spoke to some of the results as well. But it was a great race. Very positive, and uh, I'm of course I'm delighted with the result, and plan to serve the Ontario Liberal Party, but more so the people of Ontario with all my heart. Does it also speak to the work that you have to do to maybe convince people that you are the one? So. You know, the Liberal Party has been reinvigorated by the four of us who are all excellent candidates. I mean, we have the best and the brightest step up and and, and offer to their services to lead our party. And, you know, when I look at uh, the NDP, the official opposition, only Merritt stepped forward. They didn't have a very competitive race. And we traveled across the province and rebuilt the brand and reengaged people and, and built that confidence and trust with voters. And I just have to continue that work, going to the local ridings, the small towns, rural communities, northern communities, meeting people who have all told me how neglected they feel, how isolated they are, listen to their needs, and incorporate them in our policy platform to address them. I know you are busy with Mississauga's budget right now, but there are some big decisions on the horizon, whether or not you run in a by-election to get into the provincial legislature or stay until perhaps uh, uh, that Mississauga seat becomes available in the next election. Are you leaning towards one way or another right now? Well, the upcoming by-election, from what I understand, because on Sunday morning I met with our provincial council, met with John Fraser and our party president, Catherine McGarry, they've already identified a candidate. So that one will not be an option for me. Of course, ideally a Mississauga seat for the Mississauga mayor, um, but I'd be open to other ideas. I ideally would like to have a seat in the legislature, obviously, but there's a lot of work to do on the ground, continuing to meet people and re-engage um, and, and, and help identify what the Liberal brand is today because we've really evolved. We're a large, big tent centrist party, and I want people to get to know me as a person and my beginnings and, and, and how I want to help them because I know people are struggling and that their lives aren't affordable anymore under, under Doug Ford's government. And so I want to know how I can best help them. In hearing from some people, and by the way, we're in discussion with new Ontario Liberal Leader Bonnie Crombie here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Some people still have 
have that disdain for the Liberal Party back to the Kathleen Wynne, Dalton McGinty phase, how do you differentiate yourself from that uh, age of Ontario Liberals? Well, I think the brand has evolved. The party has evolved to a big degree. I'm a different kind of leader. Um, as people will know me because I'm a mayor, and, and you and I both know that in municipal government, you can't run a deficit. So we tend to be a little frugal, shall I say. We're all very fiscally disciplined, very fiscally responsible, yet I'm a very socially progressive person. So my approach the way to governing, and I have governed before, I've governing experience, um, is that I use my budget to tackle the key priorities that make the biggest differences to people. So in the case of Ontario, it would be the affordability crisis. The the fact that Ontarians don't have access to health care and over 2 million of us don't have a family doctor and this government solution is to underfund our hospitals um, and to drift towards private medicine, and they feel the solution is private clinics. And that's not a solution for Ontarians, nor is underfunding our education systems or not addressing the effects of climate change. These are the issues that are important to Ontarians, and these are the issues that I intend to focus on. No surprise that after the leadership uh, vote over the weekend that the knives are already out from the uh, progressive (laughs) conservatives, Premier Doug Ford and some of his uh, cabinet ministers saying you're out of touch with everyday people. How do you respond to that? I have worked hard for every single penny I have ever earned. You know, I didn't have the benefit of growing up in a family dynasty and having a a business handed to me by my father. You know, I am focused on the real people in Ontario, not a small group of of wealthy developers, as the premier seems to be, as he pave over the, the green belt, which was his original plan. They won't you know, they're flailing here, uh, looking for opportunities to criticize me. And I understand that because they must be very, very concerned because they know I'm an effective leader um, and I'm very popular at home. And I hope to bring that um, I hope to bring that same concern for people um, right across the province. I want people to get to know me as a person. I, I share their backgrounds. You know, my parents, my my grandparents were Polish immigrants. My grandfather was the janitor at the Globe and Mail for 40 years. My grandmother is seamstress, my mother is secretary. I grew up in a rooming house in the early days before my mom remarried. You know, we had a very simple life, much like average Ontarians. But I've worked hard based on the formula to success as we used to know it, get a good education and work hard. But that formula doesn't work anymore, and I want to fix that. I want to change that because I'm asking Ontarians, is there, are their lives more affordable today than they were before Doug Ford became the premier? And I think the answer to that is no. We've got 45, sec- to change. We've got 45 seconds. I want to squeeze in one more. Um, we, you, you mentioned the affordability crisis. We also have, as you know, a housing crisis. We need to build more homes. What are your ideas to get more homes built? That goes without saying, and here in Mississauga, we're completely uh, changing our city and embracing heights and density, and we need to build not attainable housing. I'm not sure what that is. Housing that is affordable for average people, people who have real jobs, nurses, teachers, police officers. Those are the people who are looking for work. And then there's a group that need deeply affordable um, a rent based on their income. So we have lots of plans. They're all on our website, but there'll be lots of discussions on how we're going to do that going forward. Looking forward to hearing more of those ideas. Ms. Bonnie Crombie, thank you for the time this morning. And again, congratulations. 
Thank you for having me. Good morning. Bonnie Crombie is the new Ontario Liberal leader, and I'm sure you'll hear more from her in the years to come. Whether or not it's going to be as premier of this province, well, that remains to be seen. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Canada's downtowns certainly look much different since the start of the pandemic. We're seeing it here in Hamilton. We see it in Toronto and Vancouver and all the list goes on and on and on. The most glaring change being a lot of empty office buildings. We've talked about this on the show numerous times. And the level of economic activity that is being realized in downtown centers is just not the same. So it begs the question, are downtowns dying? Karen Chappell is the director of the School of Cities and professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Karen, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Hamilton. You have analyzed downtown activity in dozens of major cities across Canada and the U.S., and the data shows that they have struggled to generate the same level of economic oomph um, than compared before the, pa- the pandemic. What has happened? Is it just because many people have left living in the downtown? Well, you can look at it two ways. You can say, you know, this is a glass half empty and uh, the office workers have left, uh, many of them, particularly professional workers and tech workers and anybody really who can work from home or hybrid. Um, But at the same time, there's this sort of glass half full. So one of the things we're seeing is that there's a lot more visitors on weekends. There's a lot more visitors and shoppers, period, in downtown. Um, So that vacuum left by the office workers is slowly but surely getting filled by other folks. So that's the opportunity. Do planners have to reimagine downtown? Oh, absolutely. You know, downtown has evolved several different times. You know, there's been a a rise and fall of downtown ever uh, since the beginning of the 20th century and the, you know, advent of the steel frame skyscraper and and uh, the transit systems that made downtown possible. And, you know, we've had we've had disasters, we've had natural disasters with them, we've had urban renewal, we've had highways cutting through downtowns, and everybody proclaimed the death of downtown in the 1960s and 70s. And yet it comes back. And uh, so that, you know, it's the center of the region, it's the heart of the region. Um, and, um, and so the we go through different periods. We go, the economy continually restructures. We went from manufacturing to services to high tech and each time our downtown remade itself. And now we're sort of in that next phase. So what does that next phase look like? What is the next big thing for downtowns and major urban centers? Well, I I think we're going to see a different way of working in downtown. Um, I think we're going to see that uh, you know, as people move to a two or three day uh, work week um, for for um, high skilled office work, um, we're going to have, you know, intensive collaboration downtown and then we're going to need to fill the space for the other days and uh, there will be opportunity um, for different types of activity, for arts and culture, for uh, for nightlife. Um, a lot of universities are looking at downtowns and thinking Uh, about taking space downtown and uh, I would love to see some of these office buildings converted to student housing. It's one of the simplest ways uh, to convert uh, an office building. Very hard to convert to luxury residential but not so hard to make a dorm room out of it. Um, So all these are going to be part of downtown's future. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Karen Chapel, the director of the School of Cities and professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto. We're talking about downtowns and how many um, in Canada and the U.S. Are, are looking a little different, or a lot different than pre-pandemic. And you mentioned the conversion. We have a housing crisis in this country and in North America. Are, are, is one city doing it right or better than others? Uh, but that's a good question. You know, when we started tracking downtowns, we have this website, downtownrecovery.com. I mean, and you can go on there and play with our various widgets and, and look at recovery rates across North America. And one of the first things we noticed was that there was huge divergence. So you had in particular the West Coast cities, um, and that, that goes really from San Francisco up through Seattle to Vancouver. Um, they were all hurting the most. Um, and then there were these cities that were bouncing back faster than any others. And in Canada, it was uh, Mississauga. It was um, uh, Halifax um, and Quebec. Um, and each one sort of have, had a different story. Uh, Mississauga just happened to open a number of new residential buildings downtown around 2020. And uh, so its numbers have been resilient because of that. Halifax, of course, has huge uh, residential demand downtown and a surge of, of growth and ha both Halifax and and other Canadian cities have seen refugees from the pandemic, um, folks moving out from the bigger cities, um, and that has really kept uh, kept those cities going. So there's been a bit of a renaissance for for mid-sized cities. And then the other thing that that we see is that the the cities that have the more diverse economies that weren't overly specialized in in say professional services, you know, the types of of jobs like law firms or accountants that don't really need to be together, don't need to meet at the water cooler to be productive and innovative. Uh, that's not the nature of their work. So they, if you weren't specialized in that, then you're actually doing better. So it's it's kind of the, the heyday of the boring downtown. <laughs> well, we're certainly seeing a renaissance in Hamilton downtown. A lot of new buildings, uh, two-way conversions of major one-way streets. It's going to be exciting to see how they figure it all out. Karen, uh, thank you for your time this morning and sharing your insight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Karen Chapel is the director of the School of Cities and professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the U of T. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP28, is currently underway in Dubai. And former U.S. Vice President and climate activist Al Gore had some harsh words for the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company the other day, calling it one of the dirtiest in the world. I don't want to be a doomsayer. We can solve this. I'm optimistic. I think we will solve this. But we cannot play games designed to protect the obscene profits uh, of these oil and gas petrostates. One of the many voices at COP28. And here's another one. Dr. Anya White is the Associate VP of Research at Dalhousie University and the Scientific Director and CEO of the Ocean Frontier Institute. Dr. Waits, good morning, or I guess in your case, good afternoon. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. Very well. Though it's warm here, uh, late 20s here in Dubai. Oh, you're just rubbing it in now. Uh, thanks for uh, the time today. <laughs> Paint a picture for us of what is happening this week in Dubai. Look, it's a really exciting conference. Um, we've got almost 200 nations negotiating behind the scenes to decide what are the next steps for the world in reaching their climate change goals. There's something called the global stock take going on, which is essentially taking stock of where we have come and where we need to go since the Paris Agreement in 2015. And that stock take is showing us that we're really not making the progress that we need to make 
Um, and one of the things we're seeing here is that the atmosphere is tell sending us the message. People are in various nations doing things to reduce their emissions, but it's just not enough, Rick. And uh, that's the discussion here at COP in Dubai. The UN says climate action can't wait. Are world leaders just not listening? World leaders have a lot of pressures. Um, when you think about Canada, for example, we've got uh, an oil-based economy. Um, many nations are struggling to decarbonize. Um, they can't get sustainable fuels and sustainable technologies on board fast enough, and that's really what's needed. So we all need to work together. We need to collaborate internationally, and we need to make sure we don't get distracted by some of the side conversations, which can have a really negative tone. We need to remind ourselves, we need to focus on, keep our eye on the ball here. That is 193 nations negotiating next steps for climate change. Can you imagine even two nations agreeing on anything um, is pretty remarkable, but 193, that's work behind the scenes, that's sweat and blood going into the future of our earth, and that's what we need to focus on. It's a great way to explain it. Dalhousie University, we know, has a $400 million program that focuses on our oceans. Can you share any details of what you are pitching at COP28? Yeah, we're very excited about our new research program, Transforming Climate Action. It brings together Dalhousie, Memorial University, University de Québec, Rimouski, University Laval. So it's really an Eastern Canadian consortium. And we are going to hit the North Atlantic Ocean and make sure that we understand how that is controlling our climate. Um, we're working on ocean carbon. And here at COP, this big investment by Canada has opened the door for the international conversations. And so what we're seeing is colleagues from around the North Atlantic and actually around the world wanted to step up and talk to us about how they can collaborate and how we can work together because really this isn't a one nation lift. It's all of us working together. So what do you need to happen? What are the next steps to take this program to the next level so that we are improving our oceans? The main thing is we need to coordinate with other international um, initiatives. So we're working with the UK, we're working with NOAA, NASA, and Woods Hole Oceanographic in the US, we're working with France, Norway, and now also with Caribbean and other nations to make sure that whatever we do is collaborative um, and that we pull investigators together. We're going to go to sea together, we're going to work on the same um, problems, and we're going to really, Canadian leadership is going to bring that whole piece of work together so that we understand how the ocean is going to change in the future. And the ocean controls our climate. So without understanding how the ocean changes, we cannot get to our net zero goals because we have no idea uh, where the carbon is going. So this is a really critical piece for all of us. Last question for you, Dr. Waite, and I've heard this from a, a lot of people, is that we know that every country pollutes to a certain degree, some more than others. And I'm looking at China and perhaps even India and the United States. Uh, what is the discussion like to convince those nations to you know, look look after what they are doing in a, in a much better light. It's challenging for all of us. Uh, Canada is no exception. Um, we are having those conversations about what actions can be taken here. And that's where we, as the Global Ocean Observing System here at COP, are advising nations on what they need to do. Um, we're also working with other nations to crystallize the next step of what our goals should be, because now that we're getting close to not being able to hit our 1.5 degree goal, we need to know what the next steps are. So that's what's crystallizing here at COP. Dr. Wade, appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of your stay in Dubai. 
Great to talk to you. Dr. Anya White is the Associate VP of Research at Dalhousie University, Scientific Director and CEO of the Ocean Frontier Institute, joining us live from COP28 in Dubai. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Canada's defense minister says there is going to be significant investments in our military. Bill Blair saying that the federal government is going to spend more than $10 billion to buy at least 14 Boeing surveillance planes to replace its aging fleet. But is that it? Are more billions going to be spent and how much more and what needs to be in tip-top shape? Christian Leprecht is a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and author of Dirty Money, Financial Crime in Canada. And he joins us now on GMH. Christian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. What kind of money are we talking about when we hear Bill Blair saying significant investments? Do you have any sense? Well, look, I mean, we spend about $25 billion, give or take, uh, um, on defense. That's about 25% of direct government spending, uh, but really fires. this is an organization that has been undercapitalized and overstretched. That is to say that politicians notoriously focus on operations. They're not really interested in reconstitution, both on the human resource side and on the equipment side, and they're not particularly interested in sustainment. That is to say what it takes to make sure the organization can continue to perform. And so you might argue that we have a very significant deficit over in terms of the capabilities that are required simply to bring the organization um, up to speed in terms of what is required for the security environment of the 21st century. And so um, the $10 billion that is being spent on surveillance planes, I mean, these are planes that should have been replaced 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, so right decision by the government, but bad execution because, you know, Bombardier is rightly complaining that if the government doesn't, wouldn't always wait till the very last minute to make critical decisions about national defense, and we could have perhaps had a made-in-Canada solution for this surveillance plane. How much more money and how much more equipment or vehicles are needed to get Canada up to the 21st century standard of military might? Yeah, so I'd say that it's not even necessarily primarily about money. It's about that the organization needs a 15-year plan of how it's going to be reconstituted. The chief of defense staff has made it clear that the priority for the organization needs to be reconstitution. It needs to be a situation where the uh, Canadian Armed Forces can get to a position where its capabilities and its human resources are actually up to the requirements and expectations that the government has of its armed forces. Uh, the chief of the Navy just came out uh, uh, last week and made very clear uh, the dire circumstances that the Navy is in. In the Air Force, we're in a situation where we're buying F-35s, but we're likely to have sufficient pilots to fly those F-35s. Uh, and the Army is stress overseas commitment and the increasing number of domestic operations, in particular the way domestic operations are being politicized by the government, where the government is now preemptively sending people to various parts of the country. I mean, look in British Columbia, the Canadian Armed Forces were deployed for 131 days running uh, in a domestic operation. Uh, those are significant strains on the organization. So um, what is really required is a vision for the armed forces rather than always waiting till the last minute, basically until the Americans say, like, you're going to have to buy this plane um, or uh, there's going to be severe consequences. Uh, Canada is not looking like a reliable ally within NORAD, within NATO, 
uh, and within our partners and allies uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And that's really ultimately the problem. Rather than do we spend a million dollars or $10 million and what exact equipment we buy, we need a Canadian Armed Forces that is actually able to perform. Um, and the Chief of Defence Staff has said that the organization is now at serious risk of not being able to uh, perform uh, certain duties when the government comes and asks, and that is to say, ultimately, when Canadians come and ask. Because we've seen a decline in people joining the military ranks in this country, uh, this also has to be part of the significant investment, does it not? So I wouldn't necessarily say a decline in people joining the military. The uh, military is about 50,000 people who come through the doors every year, um, and normally about uh, 5,000 or so uh, end up joining. Uh, the challenge is that we're in a situation where only about a little over 2,000, 3,000 people end up joining because the military, every other organization in this country, has trouble finding uh, the type of applicants and the quality of applicants that the military is ultimately looking for in order to perform the increasingly complex task it is being tasked with. So, you know, if you think about uh, 25 years ago, you trained a pilot, that pilot could fly any number of platforms. The platforms you have today are so complex that you're really training a person to operate one single platform. This is a problem both for uh, ourselves and our allies. And so it is really uh, that the military needs very high quality people, the same people that everyone else is ultimately competing for. We had or we heard from uh, Defense Minister Bill Blair on the West Block with uh, Global News Mercedes Stevenson, and um, she asked him about Canada's ammunition supply. And uh, because sources are saying we have a three-day supply as opposed to a thirty-day mandated supply by NATO uh, commitments, your your thoughts on that? Is this is this just a an example of how dire it is in Canada's military right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, the German chief of defense dev has come out and said, you know, if Germany ended up in a hot war, it would have munitions for a week. So Canada is not uh, alone in the challenges that it faces. Um, you know, we, we, for instance, make, uh, provide all sorts of assurances to Ukraine, but then in the end, we don't even have the capabilities to produce our own munitions, let alone enough to make good on the uh, commitments that we're making to other countries in order to support them in, in their fight for, uh, for sovereignty. Um, and so this, for instance, gets to the challenge of supply chains. Um, does Canada have the capabilities, whether it's military or other security related? Think about the pandemic, for instance. Do we have the foresight to make sure that we can actually um, look after ourselves in the case of an emergency or we have the plans with partners and allies uh, to be able to, uh, um, in, in, you know, imagine, for instance, a, a conflict in the Indo-Pacific, the disruptions that would come with supply chains. Um, do we have the ability to uh, to look after ourselves and uh, be a reliable ally um, if the United States, for instance, is preoccupied and we're going to have to do more heavy lifting um, in terms of continental defense and European defense? And the challenge in this country is that uh, the government in particular doesn't seem uh, interested, all that interested in investing in defense. And I think it's not even necessarily the minister or the prime minister. I think it is cabinet. Cabinet does not have defense as a priority. That's not the stuff that they want to be known for. Uh, that's not ultimately what they want to invest in, especially when money is scarce. And it's partially because Canadians haven't made it a priority. And that's why the conversation we're having is so important, that ultimately to explain to Canadians, this is your single most important foreign policy tool, the Canadian Armed Forces. If you don't have a capable Canadian Armed Forces, you're not going to be able to have much leverage um, in terms of asserting Canada's national interests abroad. And you're increasingly going to run into difficulties for the Canadian Armed Forces to perform for Canadians in an era where uh, we're already seeing domestic operations increasing in quality 
uh, quantity and complexity as a result of climate change and a host of other challenges. Always great insight from Mr. Christian Leprac. Christian, thanks for the time this morning. Rick, it's been a pleasure. Have a good morning. You too. Christian Leprac is a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A lot is happening in the world of music right now. We have the song that you just heard, breaking records all of a sudden, Kiss over the weekend playing their final concert ever after a glorious 50-year run, but now living on in the virtual space, and the death of an iconic singer-songwriter. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Eric, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Let's start with uh, an individual who is near and dear to you, and that was Miles Goodwin, the April Wine frontman, the award-winning uh, singer-songwriter, passed away in Halifax uh, over the weekend. He was 75. You were his publicist. What was he like? Um, he was a great guy. You know, um, he was one of those guys that I think I think most people can relate to this. When you see his name pop up on your phone, you you have to wait a second because you realize that this is the guy that I slow dance to when just between you and me, the song, not actually the actual <laughs> hey, Rick, just between you and me. Um, yeah. when when this when the song came out in my high school. And so when you go through all of their hits of Sign of the Gypsy Queen and Roller and selling 10 million copies around the world, um, he has every right to be a rock and roll diva. But he was the sweetest, nicest, kindest guy um, uh, uh, when I'm one of them that I've ever worked with. Um, And when he decided to leave Montreal and go back home to the East Coast to officially leave april wine at least in terms of the live aspect of it almost a year today um a year ago today where he announced in december that um that he was just going to kind of concentrate on recording the third volume of the blues album that was pretty successful it got the first volume got the juno nomination and volume one and volume two won the ecma award for blues album of the year he just wanted to calm down a little bit. He wanted to get off of that rock and roll roller coaster and that train. And um, I wasn't surprised because I think he just, he had enough of it. He just didn't really want to live out of a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And he just became a lot calmer um, in terms of, you know, his lifestyle. And it wasn't like he was all like high strung when I first started working with him about seven or eight years ago. Um, but you can sense that, it was it was time to just kind of relax a little bit more. And, uh, you know, you go through the songs and it's just I mean, their greatest hits could compete with any other rock band that's out there. Yeah, he had a, a wonderful career. And there's no doubt about that. There is a new number one song this week uh, on, <laughs> the, on the Billboard Hot 100 chart that was recorded 65 years ago. What is going on with Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree? Yeah, this is what happens when you have every single song ever written at your disposal on YouTube and music streaming services. Brenda Lee's Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, the number one song right now on the Billboard Hot 100. And it was recorded all those years ago, pretty much in the era of Alvin and the Chipmunks being (laughs) um, really good, too. I mean, this is just the third holiday number one song ever 
on the Hot 100 following Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Chipmunk song, and of course, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, and it becomes her third number one song and also the most time spent in terms of being away from the number one position um, in music history. It just ultimately destroyed the other record, which was 25 years from Mariah Carey. Um, this is almost this is almost like 63 years. So it's wild that this new generation of music lovers of like eight to 25 year olds are listening to not just Brenda Lee, but Bobby Helms is back on the top yeah. 10. Um, Mariah Carey's in the top 10. Wham is in the top 10. There's six songs right now that are kind of holiday related that are in that top 10 right now. It's pretty wild. I heard that one of the reasons why this song is doing so well now is because Lee, who is 78, is now on TikTok, which is great to see. <laughs> I'm not sure what she's posting, but obviously whatever it's, it's gets you there. Yeah. If it if it's not in in the TV series Stranger Things, you got to go on TikTok. And and uh, um, yeah, it's it's great. It's great to know that you know the music industry especially the billboard hot 100 and the popularity of song they're definitely moving away from the secular religious aspects of christmas music mm. and going more towards songs like winter and loneliness and the seasonal but it's not reflected just yet though because all of these songs are at least have the word Christmas in it. Yeah. Uh, lastly, we got a couple of minutes to chew on uh, my favorite band, and that is Kiss. Finally, hanging up, uh, you know, their makeup and their you know, their instruments, but they're not going away. They have been the first American bands to go the virtual route. At the end of their concert on Saturday, they had the virtual avatars of Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons. Um, and the rest of the band uh, on stage as kind of holograms or avatars. What do, what do you make of this? Yeah, when I talked to Gene and Paul earlier this year, I asked them and, and kind of humorously if they ever had a desire to do what the Harlem Globetrotters have done or the Wiggles, where they just franchise the Kiss brand to various groups around the world and be the official kiss band in japan or china or germany and they both laughed and they said no not a chance mm -hmm. i should have asked them if they wanted to go into the virtual world because that's exactly what it, they're going to be doing um yeah they're done um after they unfortunately had to cancel their shows in toronto and ottawa due to paul stanley's health uh, but they finished off their run at madison square garden and uh, they are now going into the virtual world where there's not a lot of information on what they're going to do, but chances are they're going to be doing concerts and maybe even release new music solely for the online world. <laughs> um, but rest assured, though, I have a feeling merchandise is going to be a very big part of it all. <laughs> it usually has been over their 50-year career, <laughs> that's for sure. Eric, we'll leave it there. Thanks, as always, for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. We'll talk soon. You got it. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator as we discussed Brenda Lee's new number one hit 65 years after it was released. Miles Goodwin, the great Miles Goodwin, and Kiss going the virtual route, which is going to be interesting to watch uh, over the next few years. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're continuing our Happy Holidays Hamilton theme today, and we're discussing... What seems to happen virtually every Christmas or every holiday season, if I can put it that way, because each and every year there seems to be a controversy involving a business. They release uh, a marketing campaign or a product or service that 
While they might think it's well-intended, it just really misses the mark. A few years ago, there was the Starbucks Holiday Cups, which some people weren't too pleased with. Uh, Target is certainly in the conversation this year for some of the things that they're selling on their website and in-store. How can these companies, how can these brands navigate what has become a delicate part of the year in terms of selling products. Alisa Freeman is a public relations and pop culture guru and joins us now on GMH. Alisa, good morning. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you. I love that title that you just gave me. (laughs) (laughs) Target is in the news for all the wrong reasons again. It's the latest company to step on a a landmine this Christmas season after releasing merchandise uh, that includes a pride nutcracker figurine and a pride Santa Claus, and it is getting chastised for doing so. It's just missing the mark. What's your sense on what is going on at Target? You know, I think the first thing that we have to think about, Rick, is that when a company enters any sort of social activism, you know, you have to think, is this really part of our brand? Are we doing this because this is the flavor of the day? But does this really fit with who we are? So I think there has to be some very hard boardroom conversations as to do we do business as usual or are we supporting different groups? And, you know, when you do decide to go down the social justice route, you have to realize that you're in for a pound and you're in for a penny. You just can't have some brands, you know, some some branding that happens, for example, pride branding that happens around Christmas. If your whole company does not reflect that uh, initiative all year round. So I think that when brands do this, they have to realize that this just isn't or should be a one-off promotion, but something that they practice all year round. And consumers are getting a lot savvier thinking, okay, well, you know, this is just a gimmick. I don't know if Target really uh, supports these issues. And some will take exception to that. Yeah, and because they're not doing it all year round, and it, it almost seems like they're trying to capitalize on people's emotions and you know one one insider uh, basically said that they're trying to avoid a bud light situation i would say that they're probably in that situation right now oh they're in (laughs) i mean you know they're trying to avoid it they shouldn't have gone down that road to begin with and i think that when you decide to follow some sort of um, social justice activity you've got to do a complete pros and cons list okay Is this part of our demographic? Is this something we can live up to all year round? Or is this something that's going to anger our usual demographic? So you have to also remember that 20% of the population is always going to hate what you do. So you're never going to please everybody all the time. You know, most people go into Target because they're, well, with the exception when they were in Canada, there's lots of choice and there's lots of deals. So why not just concentrate on that, give people what they want, what they're looking for, and in this case, I would have to say that the Pride Nutcracker maybe served more of a diversion than an actual successful promotion. we got a couple of minutes to chew on this fact, and we know that Christmas for many businesses is make or break. Maybe not necessarily for Target, but in saying that, can this do some big-time damage to that brand? No. I think that Target takes a tip and I don't think that they will suffer as a result of their Christmas sales. If you were a smaller company and entering something like that, then, you know, you would have much more of a risk. We remember when Nike got into social activism with Colin Kaepernick, and there were people who were so angry about that that they burned their shoes, many of them while they were on their own feet. (laughs) Uh, Did their stock take a hit for 24 hours? Yes. Did it rebound? Did it hurt their overall year-to-date sales? No. 
So I think that, you know, sometimes the bigger you are, people say the harder you fall. But I think that you can also um, stand to weather some of these storms um, if you have the right processes in place. Well, it's going to be fun to watch from here on in, that is for sure. And we'll just wait for the next business to make that uh Christmas season misstep. I'm sure it's not too far off in the distance. Alyssa, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me on. Alyssa Freeman is a public relations and pop culture expert offering her take on the latest misstep this Christmas season. Want to invite you to contribute to the 900 CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. You can text the word donate to 30333 and make a 10 or $20 donation. Go online at 900CHML.com and click on the Tree of Hope or Children's Fund banners and donate via PayPal or Canada Helps. You can also visit us here at the radio station, 75 Main Street West. And another big shout out to the Villages of Glencaster, the latest to make a big donation to the Tree of Hope campaign. The Villages of Glencaster has made a donation of $5,133. Thank you very much. Give where you live. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.